At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. I was in Daytona Beach, Florida. I'd been asked to uh, preach at a a youth conference, uh, a youth retreat, and there was about 200 students there, and uh, I preached that night, and um, just kind of the part of the deal, you kind of hang out after uh, the sermon's over and just kind of, you know, hang out with the students and kind of answer questions and things like that, and um, this this young uh, student came to me, and um, she began her... uh, addressed to me with a line that I'll never forget. There I am standing in a room filled with students who are kind of milling around talking. She approaches me and she says this, I will never believe in the God that you preached about tonight. It was a striking question. Of course, I was a little bit caught off guard at a Christian camp with this girl who is I guess professing atheism, I will never believe in the God who you preached about. I responded and said, please, please tell me why. She said, my older brother uh, got mixed up in, in drugs and gang violence, and she said, I prayed for him. I, I asked God to get him out of that lifestyle. I, I prayed that God would save him. I prayed that God would get him out of that lifestyle uh, b- before he ended up dead or in jail. And through tears, she said, just six months ago, uh, my brother was killed in a drug deal gone bad. She prayed, and the answer from heaven was no. No. Many of us have faced this very same thing where we have asked God for something, something that seems right, something that seems good, and and it seems like the answer should be yes, but the resounding answer we get from heaven is no. And so because of this, this girl could not believe. And so, you know, there I stand, and I'm, I'm, you know, doing my best to uh, reason with her from Scripture, explaining that God has a plan, that his ways are above our ways, uh, but, but her mind was set in and resolute. And maybe as a pastor, I'm not supposed to say this, but I understand her. I understand what she was saying. I understand what she was feeling. What do you do when you ask God for something that seems right, something that seems good, something that seems to fit perfectly in his plan? And the answer is no. Church family, we have asked God for things. We have asked God for good things, and the response has sometimes been no. 
We have asked God to heal broken marriages. We have asked God to save lost family members. We have asked God to heal broken bodies in our congregation. And thus far, some of the answers to these questions have been no. If you're taking notes, the most painful part of the Christian life is when we see a clear path, ask for what seems right, plead on behalf of those we love, and God says no. It's incredibly painful. It's incredibly painful. We say, God, what what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. It's very painful. Just this last summer, I found myself in a very bitter and angry state at God for these very reasons. Was, was asking God to do something, something that was good, something that was seemingly in his will. Yet God answered no, and it pushed me into a very bitter and, and angry, an angry place. When this happens, when God says no, we feel frustrated, we feel bitter, and that frustration and bitterness then zaps our prayer time, it zaps our Bible reading time, it creates this wedge between us and God, and then the enemy comes in and you begin to hear in your head, God does not love you, he does not care about you, God does not want what is best for you, and not only do you start hearing those statements, then you start believing those things. Again, if you're taking notes, the world, the flesh, and the devil are on a mission to get us to look at our circumstances and come to the conclusion that God does not love us. This is the mission of the world, the flesh, and the devil to try to get you to look at these things that you've been asking for. These are good things that you're asking. I mean, we're not talking about praying for a, a new car, right? We're not talking about praying for, you know, tons of money. We're, we're talking about those good things that you pray for. God, please save my dad. Please heal um, this person from cancer. God, please set this person free from an addiction. We're talking about those good things that we pray for and we're asking God for, and, and then they don't come about. And so what the world, the flesh, and the devil wants us to do is to look at those circumstances and for us to come to the conclusion that God does not love us, that God does not have a plan. This is the mission of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so today, in our text, what we see is Jesus calling out, Jesus crying out, remove this cup from me, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of death, the cup of loneliness, the cup of bitterness. Jesus asks the Father, remove this cup, and the answer from heaven is no. So what do we do? What do we do When the answer is no, Jesus responds, not my will, but yours be done. Church family, I want to pray that way. I want want to be able to not just say that when the answer is no, but I want to be able to believe that in my heart when the answer is no. And so the goal today is this. Let us build a foundation in our soul upon which we can faithfully stand and say, not my will, but yours be done. When the answer is no, when the answer is no, how can we build such a foundation in our souls and in our hearts where we can stand and say, okay, 
okay, not, not my will, but yours be done. That's the goal. That's the goal for today. If you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We have been traveling through the book of Mark and we find ourselves in the very end of the Passion Week. The, the cross is looming very heavy. They have gone and Jesus has instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. He has explained to them about the cup and the bread and what those things represent. At the conclusion of that meal, they, they leave and they go out to uh, this olive grove. Let's take a look at verse 32. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Gethsemane um, is a place, it's, a, it's an olive grove, it's a garden where Jesus would often take his disciples and they would go and they would retreat there. They would kind of um, get together and pray there. This was a common place, a, a place that was very familiar uh, to them. The word Gethsemane means uh, olive press in, in Hebrew. You kind of get this idea of it's night, it's calm, it's serene, it's quiet as they, as they come in. So the, the backdrop to everything that is happening is, is very peaceful, yet there is this storm raging in the soul of Jesus. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So he takes, he takes the 11. Remember, Judas has already left. Judas, Judas left the supper, and so they're, they're left with 11. And he sits the 11 down and says, sit here while I go pray. We know that Jesus would often retreat and pull away from the disciples and from the crowds to go pray alone. So he sits the 11 down and, and goes away to pray, but he takes with him Peter, James, and John. He takes with him uh, essentially the, the leadership of the disciples, his closest friend. We know that John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved, and so he takes with him these three closest friends. And here's what it says about Jesus. And he began to be greatly distressed and and troubled. I mean, what is happening here? Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. God in the flesh is greatly distressed and troubled. The guy who shouldn't be worried about anything at all, the guy who shouldn't be troubled or distressed about anything because he's God, is troubled and distressed. What, what's happening here? Well, with the cross looming in the very near future, Jesus is having an emotional breakdown. He is feeling distressed. He is feeling deeply troubled, filled with sorrow. It, Jesus is experiencing those, those things that we have experienced as we live the Christian life, as we have asked God for good and right things. God has said, no, we find ourselves in, in that deep troubling place. I know I'm not the only one who has had those dark nights of the soul where you're on your knees, you're on your face in, in your floor at your house, and you're just crying out to the Lord, feeling deeply distressed. 
That's exactly what's happening with Jesus. That's, that's emotionally where he's at and, and what he's going through. Again, just imagine you knew that in just a few moments an angry mob was going to come and take, take you and falsely accuse you of crimes you didn't commit. This mob was going to beat you, strip you, mock you, torture you, and ultimately kill you. How would you feel? But I, again, I found myself asking this question about Jesus being deeply distressed. Again, he, he is the strongest man ever. Jesus is more emotionally stable than any of us will ever even think about being. Amen? Why this greatly distressed and troubled? And he said to them, listen, I mean, just listen to what Jesus is saying. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. I mean, you, you guys remember uh, the, the movie Braveheart, right? Amazing movie. The, the princess goes to visit William Wallace in his, in his cell. And, and, you know, she tries to get him to, like, take some kind of drug potion to numb him. But, but he stands there calm, cool, collected, and refuses to take that because he wants to be focused so that he will not cry out in pain as they torture him. And, and William Wallace goes, and there he's, he's being tortured, and he doesn't cry out in pain. What does he cry out? Remember? Freedom! You know, so why doesn't Jesus, you know, pull the William Wallace here? Stern, focused, calm, cool, collected, all the way to the cross. On the cross, Jesus yells, freedom! I mean, I understand that's a silly movie, but, but go and read the, the, the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Go look at church history and, and, and learn about martyrs who died for the sake of Christ and, and they went to their graves. They, they were burned at the stake singing hymns. And, and here Jesus is breaking down. Why? Here's why. The reason that Jesus is having an emotional breakdown, the reason that Jesus is feeling very sorrowful even to death is because his death is unlike any other. All those stories in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, all the stories we see on the big screen, those deaths are totally and completely different than his death. His death is monumentally different, not even close, doesn't compare. So it's not just about the physical pain. So it's not just Jesus anticipating the nails and, and the scourging. And it's not just Jesus anticipating that. But it's something altogether different. If you're, if you're taking notes, Jesus' death is unlike any other because it was a substitutionary death. That's what makes his death different. Friends, this is the heartbeat of the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, you can sum up the gospel in this way. Penal substitutionary atonement or substitutionary atonement. To say it a different way, Jesus in our place, this is the death that he would die. Although he lived a perfect life and was without sin, he took onto himself our sin and that sin was then nailed to the cross, and he was killed and crucified in our place. Meaning, when you see the crucifix, when you see the Christ, when you see him hanging there, you need to get in your mind, that should have been me. I should have been hanging on the cross for the sins that I have committed. We, we live in this world that tells you that you're not really that bad. 
I mean, you're pretty much a good person. You're, you're great. You're lovely. You're a beautiful, unique snowflake. And, and the truth is, is that we are sinners who deserve punishment. That is the reality. And it is Jesus on the cross who takes that punishment for us. And so Jesus is suffering emotionally, sorrowfully under the weight of knowing he will take on the sins of the world onto himself and be crucified for it. Listen to what Isaiah 53, 11 says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And listen to this. He shall bear their iniquities, substitutionary atonement. He takes on our sins onto himself, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus takes this onto himself. The, another reason why Jesus' death is totally different, listen to this. Jesus' death was unlike any other because he had to face it alone. He had to face Everything he was about to endure, everything he was about to go through, Jesus was going to do this alone, by himself. I think one of the most comforting things that can be said to anyone when they are experiencing sorrow, pain, distress, disease, sickness, the most comforting thing that can be said to that person is, you're not alone. I know what you're going through. I've experienced this too. You're not alone. But here Jesus must go through this whole ordeal alone. You see, the same sin that cuts us off from God separated Jesus from the Father on the cross. God, the Father, turned his back on Jesus. This is why he cries out at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason that Jesus is undergoing this deep distress is because of alienation, is because of loneliness. Everyone is going to leave him. We're going to get to this verse at the end of this section that's really weird. Just, just let your eyes jump down to it. verse 52. But then he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark is emphasizing the fact that everyone left Jesus, everyone was leaving him so fast that this guy was willing to run away naked, endure the shame of running the streets of Jerusalem naked, so that he didn't have to be with Christ. Everyone leaves him, and his father turns his back on him. Friends, you have to see this. Jesus faced death alone so that we would not have to face death alone. Two quick thoughts before we move to the next section. These are totally rabbit trails, but I warn you before we go. Two quick thoughts on this section. In distress and sorrow, Jesus reaches out and takes hold of prayer and friends. In times of distress and sorrow, oftentimes we... We insulate, we, we go inward and retreat, but Jesus gives us this great example of when the pain comes, when there's sorrow, when there's deep anguish, when the answer from heaven is no, we don't insulate and retreat inward, but we go to God in prayer and we reach out to friends. In addition, what we see here um, in this, where Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, the, the second thing that we see is Jesus gives us permission to feel sorrow and pain. I mean, 
If you guys grew up in the church, you know, maybe you kind of got this idea like I did that, that Christians were not allowed to experience sorrow and pain. Why? Because we're, we're conquerors in Christ. And, and God, you know, makes a plan and for those who love him and everything's going to turn out good. So why are you being sorrowful and filled with pain? You're not supposed to feel that way. Jesus here gives us permission to experience sorrow and to experience pain. The problem is we don't often believe that we have permission to feel what we are feeling. And here Jesus openly expresses his feelings, what he's going through. And again, just as another rabbit trail and side note, men, here is the manliest man that ever walked the face of the planet expressing and talking about his feelings. Let's continue on. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, we've got to get the fullness of what's happening here in our minds. It's not as if Jesus is piously walking around the garden, hands folded with his white robe and, you know, long flowing hair, praying, Abba, Father, if it be your will. No, he, he's, he's wrecked. He's crushed. He's weeping and crying out. As we read the account from Matthew, it says that he prayed this prayer repeatedly. He keeps praying it. This is, this is his humanity on display as he's down on the ground calling out, crying out to God to remove the cup. The, the cup, when he says cup, it's a, it's a symbol of God's plan for him. This cup of bitterness, this cup of wrath, this cup of judgment that he must drink. Jesus is asking. He, he begins his prayer by saying, Abba, Daddy. Father. You see, rabbis in that day didn't pray that way. They didn't use that type of intimate language. But here, Jesus begins with this intimate introduction by calling him Daddy, Father. Remove this cup. Jesus wants to skip the alienation, the loneliness, the pain, the sorrow that's going to come on him. He does not want to go through this. So Jesus asked that the cup would be removed. Yet, there is this follow-up to his request. The request, look back at it in verse 36. Remove this cup from me. That's the request, comma. It's followed by this. It's followed by, yet not what I will, but what you Will. His human desire is to not endure the cross, but his greater desire is to be in and obey the will of God. This is a picture of surrendering of the will. Our, our culture says that those who are full of their own will and can push through and endure and get it done no matter what, those who never surrender are the ones who are the greatest. And here Jesus does the exact opposite and surrenders his will. He puts his will under the Father's will. 
He is the king who surrenders. Jesus at any moment could have given up and given in. Forget this, I'm out. Snaps his fingers, chariot fire comes down, he hops in it, and he's away to heaven. At any moment, Jesus could have given up and given in. He could have called down an army of angels, but Jesus surrendered. Friends, what we see taking place here in the garden is the greatest spiritual battle the world has ever known. Jesus has already defeated Satan in the wilderness during his temptation, and now he must defeat temptation again. This is why the Bible says that Jesus knows every temptation that we experience. This is a day-to-day experience for us, is it not? Submitting our will under the Father's will. Anybody else struggle with that other than me? Surrendering your will to the Father's will, giving up your lustful desires, your sinful desires, listen, even some of your good desires, and putting those underneath the will of the Father. Jesus, our great example, shows us. Verse 37, and they came, and he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, these are the guys who just hours ago said, we're going to go with you and we'll fight to the death right after we take a nap. The spirit, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he came And he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now he arrives and finds them sleeping. In this hour where he's reached out to his friends, he he cannot depend on them. Notice that uh, in verse 37, just listen to this. He said to Peter, so he's talking to Peter, but what name does he call him? Simon. Peter is the name that he gave him. Peter means rock. Well, in this moment, he's not being very rock-like. So he calls him Simon. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? Now, before we, we all go getting high and mighty, remember it was late, okay? For some of you, that's enough. The sun goes down and you're like, that's it, I'm going to bed. Remember that it was late, but on top of that, they had had an insanely busy week. I mean, just think about everything that we've seen them do, all the ministry that they've done, going with Jesus to and from the temple. Um, I mean, they've had an insanely busy week. Not to mention, they just came, listen, from a big holiday meal where they've been drinking wine. So you can understand as they slow down and as they pause, they go to sleep. And so while it's understandable, it still shows their lack of faith. Jesus has repeatedly told them that he is going to be killed, that they are going to come and arrest him, that he is going to be falsely tried, that that they're going to hang him on a cross and that he's going to resurrect. He's told them this again and again and again, 
and by them sleeping shows that either they think he's speaking in metaphors or it's not that big of a deal or them sleeping worst yet shows that they don't believe him at all. Verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Again, Mark showing the intimate relationship where, where Judas stood. Not an outsider, not one of those bad people out there, but an insider, one of the twelve. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. Remember, they don't have spotlights, they don't have flashlights. It's in the middle of the night. They're in a dark olive grove. It's hard to see. And so Judas would have had to identify him so that they knew which one to arrest. If you remember, Jesus isn't like glowing and floating around. So he's kind of hard to pick out of a crowd. So, so Judas has to come in and, and do this gesture so that they know which one to arrest. And when he came, he went up to him once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the Gospel of John that this is Peter. Again, the, the, the guy who said, you know, I'll, I'll fight to the end for you, Jesus, and then goes to sleep. He can't stay awake for one hour. And then all of a sudden he pops up and, you know, he's like sword wielding Peter now who's you know, just swinging, I mean, cuts this guy ear off. We know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus picks the guy's ear up and puts it back on. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. Jesus is essentially here calling them cowards. I was in the temple day by day. You could have, if, if you, you know, weren't cowards, just arrested me then in front of everybody for all to see. But no, they have arranged this little cohort, this little group to arrest him in the dead of night because they're cowards and they don't want to offend anybody, they don't want to upset anybody, so they're trying to get rid of him swiftly and quietly. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. We're assuming that this guy was kind of following the, the kind of group that was following Jesus. It was nighttime, so we're assuming he was in his pajamas. In addition, church history tells us that this is possibly Mark, the author of this gospel, who's just kind of, you know, dropping a hint that he was there when all of this went down, uh, but that can't be verified. It's just uh, church, church history that kind of lays it out there for us that this is Mark. But again, what we do know, the emphasis is on verse 50, and they all left him and fled in 52, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They all left him alone to face and go through what he had to go through, what he had to endure. Now, I want us to try to answer this question how can we 
Pray like Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. When the answer is no, when we ask God for something that is good, something that is right, something that seems to be in his plan, yet we get the answer no. How do we, like Jesus, add that comma, yet not my will but yours be done? How do we pray that? And church family, how do we not only pray it but mean it? Number one. We can pray for the will of God rather than our own when we know we are praying to the Father. That's where Jesus started in his prayer. How does he get to over here, overpass over his request and land on not my will but yours? Because he knows who he, it is that he's praying to. He's praying to the Father, a loving Father, a good Father, a, a Father who doesn't uh, possess the mishaps of our earthly fathers. This is a perfect Father, a loving Father. And it is the character of the Father which allows Jesus to say, not my wills, but yours be done. It is the character of the Father that allows Jesus to reach out and take the cup, the cup that he had asked to be removed. Jesus instead reaches out and takes this cup of bitterness, takes this cup of wrath, and he drinks it because his Father has asked him to do it. I mean, just imagine you're walking down the street. And a stranger comes up to you with a cup, and there's a strange liquid in it, and it looks weird, and it smells weird. And the guy says, here, drink this. <laughs> what do you say? No way, weirdo, get away. You, 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 you don't know this guy. You don't know who he is. You don't know his character, where he's coming from, what's in the cup, what's going on. But it was different when you were a kid and your dad came to you with that cup and it had a liquid in it that was weird and it smelled weird and it tasted funny. And your dad said, here, drink this. Because of his character and because of his love, you take the cup and you drink it and it's medicine that helps you and makes you better. So ultimately, it is the character of the Father that allows us to do this. And so, church family, when we hear the answer is no, we must go back and study the character of the Father who is telling us no. And we'll see that time and time again, he does what is best and right for his kids. And it's only with that firm understanding and that grasp on the history and the track record of God that we can say, not my will, but yours be done. Number two, we can pray for the will of God rather than our own when we know his will is good. So it's not just that God is a loving father, because I don't know if you know this or not, just because somebody loves you doesn't mean that their plans for you are always right. Okay, just because somebody loves you does not mean that their plans for you are always right. You have family members just like I do, and they love to tell you exactly what they think that you should be doing, don't they? But just because they love us doesn't mean that their plans are always right or always good or always perfect. But we can say to God, not my will, but yours be done, because his plans, his will is always good. It always works out better. This, this is us acknowledging that we had this plan in our mind. We had this pathway. We had this thing we were going to go do, and here we go to do it, and we go, no, 
Are you No, this is the path. God, don't you understand? It's all mapped out. It's all laid out. I have detailed schematics of how this is going to play out. And God says, no, my plan's actually way better than that one. And then we, we actually turn and we pause and we look and we realize that the best laid plans that we have come up with in our lives, the, these big grand ideas, the, these things that we wanted to, to go out there and do have blown up in our face in the past. And we realize that when we do actually like Jesus, the king who surrenders, when we surrender, we realize that it always works out better. It always works out better. So we can pray for the will of God rather than our own when we know that his will is good. His plans are monumentally better. Third and lastly, we can pray for the will of God rather than our own when we know that heaven awaits us. We're not, we're not saying that pain isn't real or that sorrow isn't real. Jesus is enduring sorrow. He's going through. And, and no one here is foolish enough to say that when you get the no answer, that it doesn't hurt. Or that there isn't sorrow there. When you, when you pray and ask for good things, God, please heal this person. God, please save my family member. God, please do this. And the answer is no. There is real pain. There is real sorrow but we can say, not my will, but yours be done when we realize that heaven awaits us. You know, some of, some of the most amazing songs about heaven were written by African Americans in slavery, enduring pain, enduring suffering, R real pain the, these people were experiencing, and they they got through, they got through the pain because they, they sang these songs that talked about a better and brighter future, this, this idea of hope. They had hope. That's how they, that's how they made it through, by singing about heaven and this, this life to come where there would be no more pain, no more shame, no more crying, no more disease that, that racks our bodies. And so they sang about heaven. And so in the moment when we pray and we ask God for things and the answer is no and there is pain and there is sorrow and there is hurt, we can know that heaven awaits when every tear will be wiped away and all the scars that we bear will ultimately be healed and all of the no answers will be explained and we will understand why the answer was no. That is how we can say, not my will, but yours be done. Church family, if there is no Gethsemane, then there is no Calvary. And if there is no cross, then there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then there is only hell for us. But Jesus offers us heaven by making it through Gethsemane. We get to await and look forward to heaven because Jesus endured Gethsemane and, and made it through. You see, in the beginning, in the beginning of the Bible, there was another garden, a garden a lot like Gethsemane, but this was the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam said, no, God, not your will, but my will be done. But in Gethsemane, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Adam rejected God's will, and in the beginning, 
It destroyed everything. But Jesus in this garden submits to the will of the Father, and it begins the process of restoring everything. The battle of good and evil was lost in the Garden of Eden, but it was regained in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, when our first father Adam failed, Jesus is the greater Adam who succeeds in this garden. The greatest battle that has ever been fought and waged is here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and where Adam failed, Jesus is the greater Adam who secures our future through his shed blood on the cross and calls to all, come and partake, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood as he goes to the cross alone in our place for our sins so that we might know that God is a good and loving God whom we can submit our wills to and follow him. May we be a people building a solid foundation upon which we can stand and say, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.